independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. When we talk about criminals, we can talk about white collar criminals. We can talk about people who who robbed the U.S. government and specifically taxpayers of millions of dollars in the 2008 financial crisis. People who still millions of dollars because of the way that they evade taxes. That's theft. And it's legal theft. And because we've, you know, the people who have been given so much power, our legislators have turned because it's them, you know, like essentially they're protecting themselves because they're so caught up in this system of, of what is I would deem as criminal behavior. They get they get a, they get a pass. Today, we have with us Dr. Kimberly McLon, the founder of Grant Boulevard, which is a clothing brand committed to creating opportunities in sustainable fashion for marginalized folks in Philadelphia. Before starting her clothing brand, Dr. McLon's 17 years of classroom teaching about marginalization and colonialism have shaped her insights into the intersections of environmental and social justice. So this will be the key focus of our discussion today as we talk about things like the connections between climate justice and mass incarceration, as well as restorative and transformative justice, going beyond the oversimplified labeling of people who commit crimes as bad people needing to be locked away, period, and instead better contextualizing isolated events with the greater system. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I think for all of us, we've had experiences where we, we came to some kind of epiphany about how we identify, that's a part of like our own individual evolution is coming to terms, getting clarity about who we are. And I think even as a little girl, my parents were always very clear to my sisters and I about, about who we were, particularly grounding us in a real sense of, of love and joy and being black and love and joy and being Muslim. My parents converted to Islam when I was about five or six. And then also about being female. My daughter was very much so, you know, a girl dad. And there were three of us 
and that house on Grant Boulevard. And so that was some of the early identifiers that shaped my 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 grounding of my, everything I do about in terms of seeing the world and around my own identities. And those identities evolved. By the time I was 14, my parents, they, they got divorced. My mother was very, very, very ill. She developed some deep depression and anxiety. And so she decided to take, you know, kind of go off on her own. And that gave me a new identifier of being a kid without a, without a mom, which is, which was challenging for sure. And then my father, he figured out his, his way of kind of medicating all the disruption through cocaine. And so I knew what it was like then, a new identifier of being a kid with a parent with a substance abuse issue. And, and my identities continued to evolve into a woman who likes reading and loves plants and loves traveling and loves people and has dated people, you know, men and women. So I think that I think that everything about Grant Boulevard and growing up there, it was a real fertile ground for getting me to just see life from sometimes a chosen lens and then other ways just a, a given lens and perspective for being. Mm. I know your father was in a way a food activist and your mother volunteered as a counselor at a local prison. And you also volunteered at the nonprofit Books Through Bars, which is committed to providing access to free books to those who are currently incarcerated. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share some of the most memorable experiences you've had as a volunteer that became a part of your why behind your work to this day. Yeah, Books to Bars was a, is a huge kind of pivotal point in my thinking that my coming to just observe mass incarceration from a different altitude. I was an English major in undergrad. And so I've always loved, I've always loved books. Books were always, they were my friends and my parents and my guides. And so I started volunteering there, not really quite understanding what I was even getting myself into, just knowing that I wanted to be on the ground really connected to the work, like the the soul work of sitting with people suffering. And that that's like the the was the biggest takeaway. And that struck me pretty immediately. I mean, what happens at Books Through Bars if you go to volunteer there is you get trained on how to receive people's words and their requests for entertainment or escape or self-improvement. And then to how to honor that by giving them books that you select based on what they express as being interests. And so in those letters I read about this idea of being in solitary, being alone, being isolated, sometimes in solitary confinement, sometimes just by way of how, how prisons go through these periods of, of really long lockdowns, of being in a cell for 22 hours and of needing some kind of way of just coping with that kind of isolation and not having access to fresh air. So that, those are, that, was, that was one thing. And then there were letters from people who were figuring out addiction and, and trying to figure out how to navigate getting well and people who wanted to learn about astronomy. So yeah, that everything about that really, that experience of Books to Bars, it illuminated for me a suffering of humans. This is really mass incarceration is about a human rights issue. It illuminated for me in a real physical sense about, you know, as, as far as I could get to that suffering, to just holding paper that someone else had, had sat with and, and had processed their thoughts and their feelings and their dreams and air those out, hoping that a stranger would receive them and, and honor them. That feels like a really humanizing experience because I feel like oftentimes out of sight, out of mind. So when we think about a lot of people don't think about the people who are currently incarcerated and, you know, how they have their own humanity, they have their own interests, passions, their dreams for themselves and everything like that. So you've gotten to really interact with that at a personal level. 
Yeah, and I, and I think that that's what it's going to take if we're going to change this conversation. I mean, it's going to take lots of things, but, but one thing is going to take in terms of like a, a community level response. And when I say community, I don't mean just the black community. I mean, Americans who recognize that humans deserve dignity and rehabilitation and access to a green space. It's going to take us to recognize that just because we send people away and we put them in cages, we store them in places for lengths of time that for those of us who are pet owners, and I'm not even a pet owner, I would never imagine keeping a dog in conditions like that. And I think that that the reform that is so desperately overdue is going to come when more and more of us sit with the reality that we have denied people you know, men and women access to freedom, but strip them of so many levels of human dignity. And we just ignore the fact that 95% of them come home. I mean, prisons are not, there are very few people who get in prison for the totality of their life, which is a whole nother thing, right? Like that's a whole nother, another sidebar conversation about the injustice of that. But particularly for people that 95% that are going to cycle in and out of prison and, and jails, We've got to get a lot more clear about, and, and not even just clear, a lot more strong about saying that that is completely unacceptable. So today, the Black Lives Matter movement in the recent months has really gained global awareness and support, primarily due to the recent multitude of police brutality incidences against our fellow Black citizens. So there's been a lot of talk about reform, defund, or abolish the police. But the reality is that it's really not just about police brutality against African Americans, because that exists as one part of the larger prison industrial complex that doesn't really exist in the same scope and scale in any other country in the world. And that's also something we learn as we take on a more global perspective of of the world. And this is something that I don't think a lot of people realize when we just accept the norms that we have today as they are. So what are some things that you think everyone should know about this sort of institutionalized injustice of the PIC, whatever you feel most called to share? Wow, you you really hit on a lot of things in that in terms of a really kind of like wide, you know, relatively meaty introduction for people who maybe are thinking about these things for the first time about what what we're up against and these these levels of systematic injustice. And I think that what we're seeing in terms of these in the last, I would say, five years, because we're really talking about this new this new Internet sharing of this brutality, which is so painful and traumatic for black people to watch over and over again, just as a longer legacy of having to have a limited experience of being of either being personally brutalized or knowing people, loving people who have experienced brutality. But what we're what we have to kind of come to terms with is how how embedded the dehumanization of black people has been. And that's what really when we talk about people in power who have the ability to to kind of act with brutality with a sense of in, impunity and that's what we're what we're what we're up against is a sense of impunity about about the treatment of citizens particularly when they're black is a larger cultural phenomenon in the longer story of America which generally dehumanizes black people and that's what i think you know when we talk about this you know we're looking at the 4th of July and, the, and that coming up as a holiday in just a few days and the story of America as a place of, of independence and freedom and bravery and courage, it really, it's, it's gonna, I think this is going to be a particularly challenging experience with the 4th of July this year for Black people who are very, very, you know, they've all, we've always been clear and we're presented every day with more and more evidence that that narrative of America has been, has betrayed us. That's what it feels like for me, a betrayal. 
Well, and we really have a whitewashed history, right? That what we learn in the history books, it doesn't really tell the full story, especially with the Black perspective, as well as the Indigenous perspective as well. And we don't really share that common memory of freedom and exceptionalism and this greatness that one segment of the country might feel and feel strongly about celebrating with this Independence Day on the 4th of July. So, so, so true. And and I think that that extends to to every other group that doesn't identify and doesn't enjoy the protections that come with just being visibly white, right? So we can talk about indigenous people. And we can and when we talk about we're talking about native tribes, right? Indigenous tribes, but even if we talk about people who were on this land first, like the, the indigenous tribes as those who now currently identify as Mexican or El Salvadorian or Guatemalan, the stories that we've been given through our just through our both in public and private educational settings it has deprived those those stories of the fullness of of the horror of it all and so it, it it is an interesting we don't think about privilege as being protected from stories of horror but it's so interesting i think that so many white americans even in their ability to kind of conceptualize america they they only see it truly from the lens of those who have have who've enjoyed the fruits of stolen labor and stolen land and not from the not from the perspective of, of other groups, most other groups, all other groups who have stories in, in differing degrees of just complete American Gothic horror. Right. Well, this sort of touches on some of your personal experiences, but I think our dominant culture often teaches people to look at right versus wrong in very black and white manners. So if you commit a crime, you're a bad person. Criminals are bad people. Criminals are dangerous. To me, that takes a very myopic view because it's likely that it's a lot more complicated than that, especially when you seek to understand the context and the conditions that lead to those events. So what are the links between poverty and criminalization that are evidence of incarcerated people in this country, not always deserving of those oversimplified labels of criminals equal bad people that need to be punished and locked up? Oh, so much to unpack there. I think I think one thing that that just I mean I'm gonna get to the to that kind of that larger kind of thinking about how we criminalize people. But even if we think about that that in a broader sense, when we talk about criminals, we can talk about white collar criminals. We can talk about people who who robbed the U.S. government and specifically taxpayers of millions of dollars in the 2008 financial crisis. People who still millions of dollars because of the way that they evade taxes. That's theft. And it's legal theft. And because we've, you know, the people who have been given so much power, our legislators have turned because it's them, you know, like essentially they're protecting themselves because they're so caught up in this system of, of what is I would deem as criminal behavior. They get they get a, they get a pass. They, their criminality gets whitewashed. Their privilege protects their criminality from even being demonized or vilified the way that it actually deserves to be. Instead, the public lens is centered on the petty crimes of people who are ultimately navigating really just the, the brutality of poverty. You know, we talk about a place like Philadelphia, which is where Grant Boulevard is based. 26% of people in Philadelphia live below the poverty line. It's the highest rate of poverty in America, but it's not alone. When we look at cities across the country, and that's where predominantly where large, you know, large numbers of people who are enter into the criminal justice system where they take up residence. 
a lot of that is tied to these, these dense concentrations of communities that have been redlined for so long that have not been given adequate access to food in terms of like, we you know we're talking about food deserts where schools are underfunded because of the way that we fund schools where, you know, systems of public, of public transportation may not get them to the suburbs or manufacturing plants exist where they still do exist. So we have these communities of people where there's a lack of healthcare access. So we have this widespread depression that's not, not adequately treated. And, and so we have all of these other things that really create destabilization in the homes of people and that manifest themselves in a real desperate attempt to figure out how to get basic needs met when there aren't other you know, privileged pathways to self-sufficiency. And so when I th thought about creating Grant Boulevard, it was really, it was a response to all of that all of my my personal observations about these change, this, these, these domino effect kind of pieces, and then thinking that, you know, if I could see that all of these systems were, and their failures, were, were linked in such a way that it was resulting in so many black and brown people ending up incarceration. And that has nothing to do with, I mean, like, that's only a piece of it, right? Because we have to talk about police budgets. You mentioned, um, you know, people who say we should defund the police or abolish the police. But what is statistically true is that these same neighborhoods are policed at higher rates. And so there's going to be a higher rate of incarceration just compounded by the extra police presence. So for me, it was like seeing these pieces from 30,000 feet and I thought, you know, there are so many things that these that this problem needs in terms of slowing the, the bleeding. But I thought I, I thought it was really exciting and it continues to really excite me to think about how I could build a model for some systemic kind of new approach to both how we address the ability to get people who have, who have faced all this bias because of their history of incarceration and people who likely don't have a whole lot of skill if we can build a community without hierarchy where they could come and be reimagined, where they could reimagine themselves and then be paid a fair wage for the work that they do. So that's the longer journey of what Grant Boulevard aspires to do is to model that kind of response to so much, to so much despair. Lost my wings, can't fly, give me some faith. There's a sickness inside of me It runs so deep I don't know how to heal the pain It fills me with hate It's a weakness I can't fight It comes in the night It won't leave me alone Like a dark shadow I need really powerful. And this is also where more systemic injustice unveils itself, where some people say, you know, we no longer have racialized laws of segregation, but capitalism has placed us in this economic race where white people had centuries of a head start while black people contributed their free and forced labor to building up white wealth. So to this day, we still have persisting economic injustice from that history, an injustice that is racialized overwhelmingly with black and brown folks at the bottom, which then in many cases, as you mentioned, feeds into this prison industrial complex where poverty or the actions sparked by struggle are criminalized. So there's just so much that is systemic. And something that you mentioned earlier reminded me of 
this amazing, brilliant quote from Dr. Cornell West that really stuck with me. So he said, most of my fellow citizens that are in the streets are they're peaceful or are they're marching. When it does spill over into violence, looting is wrong, but legalized looting is wrong too. Murder is wrong, but legalized murder is wrong too. I look at the wickedness in high places first and then keep track of the least of these, end quote. So that's just a really powerful reminder for us to really question what crime means and what what sorts of acts our society criminalizes as opposed to allows to get away with. Absolutely, 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 absolutely right. And I think that is it. I, I love, always love the, you know, like I don't, I shouldn't say I always, I often love the way that Dr. West, Dr. Kona West frames things um, because I think it's an important way of thinking about what, about where we, where we ascribe blame and how we weight, how we weight things and, and even how we pull out punishments. And it's, it's just deeply problematic to me that we continue to be so comfortable with such harsh punishments for crimes that are they crimes? You know, like in some states, we, we can think about even just like the micro level of the of legalization of marijuana or the criminalization of marijuana, depending on which way you want to frame it. But we still have millions of people in this country who are either currently serving jail sentences for crimes related to marijuana, where at, while at the same time, we have, you know, dozens of companies springing up, mostly owned by white folk mostly owned by white men that are in the in the trade of marijuana either it's through THC related products or CBD related products and that not only are they not punished but at this point they're they're owning a dominant market share of the same sector that continues to contribute to the incarceration of of black and brown people and that that is just one that's one micro example of how we have we have just based on who we vote for how we've given power to people who have turned a blind eye to this kind of duplicity or who are benefiting from it. Worse yet, they're benefiting from it. Mm. Vote, y'all. We got to vote. Yeah, it's crazy to think about how some people have been benefiting and profiting off of harming other people, whereas a lot of people who are responding to that harm have been locked up and really just swept under the rug in this systemic injustice because as they come out of their imprisonment, they also have permanent records that likely will affect them for the rest of their lives. That's how that works. Yeah. That's how that works. And and even in those places where, you know, in Pennsylvania there was a, a lot of work done these last few years to ban the box, you know, where you didn't have to check um, whether or not you had a criminal conviction or not in an in an initial application. But that was done, and that's being done in other places too. Other states are kind of picking up on the amazing work of, of people like, you know, so we have state rep jo- Joanna McClinton here in Pennsylvania. She's been doing a lot of work in this way. But it's this idea of people facing these additional barriers to being able to, to just recover from the trauma that being incarcerated already is, right? So you come out of prison, you don't get any kind of meaningful rehabilitation while you're there, and then you emerge. They give you nothing, right? You get what you came with. And then you have to set out into the world almost like a newly freed slave at the point of an emancipation proclamation. And the expectation is, is that now you're going to be able to take care of yourself when you weren't educated when you were in prison. You didn't get meaningful therapy when you were in prison. And because you have a conviction, depending on that conviction, it's going to be hard for you to find someone who will let you live and a landlord that will let you live in their properties. If you're a parent, 
If you can't find a place to live and you can't be reunited with your children, which is super expensive to us as taxpayers and horrible to family dynamics. I mean, we could go on and on and on, right, about how this this system that we've allowed to just kind of to handle the dirty work of of putting out of sight all of these black and brown bodies because they are so in the, the American psyche really deeply inherently criminal. Like that's the, the harder thing to deal with is what's happening in the American psyche about how we look at black and brown people. But we put them away and then we expect them to come home and just and just slide right in. And, and you know, it's interesting. There used to be a, a lot of conversation about how do we name people that, you know, are coming home from this experience of being of being of being jailed, of being housed in these cages. And, you know, for a long time, the people were really comfortable with referring to them as returning citizens. And, and now, you know, there's another lens to say, but were they ever really treated with full citizenship? Mm-hmm. Is it a misnomer to say that they're returning citizens if thinking about where they came from and how they were treated for for the crime that they that they committed that they may or may not have committed? There's so much there. And we could, of course, go on. But I would love to bring in your fashion brand, Grant Boulevard, which you say is a response to slavery, to lease labor, to Jim Crow, to persistent economic injustice and marginalization. Most of our listeners have been trained by now to connect the dots between different issues. But to the people who may not understand how you went from wanting to address uh, social injustice, mass incarceration and poverty to creating a fashion brand, I'd love to hear the spark that led you to turn to fashion, as well as the parallel racist exploitation that still exists within the fashion industry today. I love this beautiful ecosystem that is Grant Boulevard. We are a sustainable apparel brand that is really committed to making decisions that show my sense and my team's growing sense of showing up and creating solutions that are very deeply thoughtful for sure, but intersectional, most certainly. And that means not using new fabrics, you know, well, and I shouldn't say that our first four collections use no new fabrics. We use fabrics that already exist, really interested in taking back things that were once, you know, gendered exclusively for men like garments and then adding some sauce to make them fresh again and saving them as a result of that from, you know, lengthening their timeline before they may at some point end up in a landfill. You know, as a planet, we send lots of of textile waste to landfills in in lots of different regards, mostly because fast fashion has just sped up our consumption in a way that even our homes can't contain. So we end up buying things and rather either it's designed to only be wear once or twice and then it falls apart or because we're in this vicious cycle of wanting to buy more and more and more things, we end up with things we can't have. So for us, it's how do we use fashion to create, at least in our first four collections, and this will always be a part of Grand Boulevard, even as we evolve and thinking about scaling as we grow, that we will always have a collection that's based on our thoughtful plays with one-of-one fashion for those of us who, who really like our closets to be a really precise imagining of ourselves, but also of this idea of zero waste. So that's what we've been doing these, these four, first four or five years is doing that work. And then simultaneously, using the fashion arts to create space for for all kinds of all kinds of people who identify as women. And how are you going about your brand differently in ways that serve the mission of helping marginalized and incarcerated people? We we have a, a number of nonprofit partners. I mean, I guess we could think kind of structurally. So and and from a structural perspective, I've been really committed to fostering these really beautiful partnerships with 
folks in Philadelphia, nonprofits in Philadelphia, this Department of Corrections from Pennsylvania, to figure out how we can identify where there's some gaps and how we can build something that is a response to those gaps. And, and then we've been met with a whole lot of enthusiasm for that effort. And so that's one of the things structurally that makes us different. And then in addition to that, through that work, we've been able to figure out how do we identify people who are formerly incarcerated or who are experiencing homelessness or who have worked or working through an experience with homelessness and finding a home for them among our team. So that's another way that we're being purposeful about creating space. But there are other ways too. For our last, our most recent collection, our summer 2020, you know, we, we, we our fashion is categorized as it should be, which is seasonal. So for our, our warm weather collection for 2020, we are donating 3% to the Philadelphia Bailout Fund. And that's a fund that's dedicated to helping people who cannot afford bail to access funds that can get them reunited with their families until they're actually, you know, formally kind of going into their entering into their trial process. So we do that. Um, so there are lots of ways in which we are deeply kind of embedded in our DNA to sitting at the table, both because I'm, I identify in so many ways with the needs of black people and brown people, but also because we want to make sure that we're modeling what businesses can be doing on that end to show up. One of the questions that I keep thinking about a lot is we have this society, this capitalist, this predatory capitalism where the rich are getting wealthier and the poor are getting poor. So we have this increasing wealth gap that is forcing more and more people to be reliant on cheap food, cheap goods, cheaply made products that likely were produced by these giant corporations using exploited labor. So in this sense, injustice kind of feeds into injustice. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on how we might be able to break free from this vicious cycle. Wow. Um, I think that, I mean, my aspiration is, is that if as, as companies like Grant Boulevard continue to, to, to kind of pop up, that we will really get behind them. I mean, my aspiration for Grant Boulevard, for a lot of people, and this is people who live in Philadelphia, but also our customers who are now they're all over the world. We've started shipping to you know Israel and Canada and Australia. And so mm-hmm. for, for me, the hope is, is that we can we can become to, for people, what Urban Outfitters is, where it's like, I, I shop everything I shop. I know I feel really good about it because if I want a new shirt or I want a new, a new, you know, new dress or a new look, I'm shopping Grand Boulevard because I know who made it and I know what they care about and I've seen their packaging and I don't, they, there's the garments are so beautiful or there's these other companies, the things they produce are so lovingly made that I'm good. Like I don't, I don't actually shop from, you know, a whole, I don't, you know, I've, I've narrowed my consumption to a few companies who can give me the things that I need, period. I've curated my own closet. I've curated a kitchen that, that reflects my values. My living room reflects my values. And that's what I think we, that what we need in terms of like this question of how do we, how do we really reform things? Voltaire, a French philosopher who was a, one of those enlightenment thinkers that, you know, as problematic as the founding fathers were, he was one of those voices that they listened to and their own bold experiment to start something anew. And he said, we have to weed our own gardens. And that's hard enough. Like for those of us who like to play in dirt, for those of us who are gardeners, for those of us who have who know what it's like to stand in the sun, weeding any garden is hard. And we have to weed our own gardens. And I think that that, that garden for me, that metaphor is really about what do we bring into our homes? Mm. That's where the change starts. 
It's where do we, what do, and that's a, that's a huge thing. You know, we talk about like our bathrooms as spaces and our living rooms as spaces and our closets as spaces. And I think that the hope for me is that we will begin to think about sustainable living as one that's really grounded in how we behave in our own homes. Well, whether we're talking about who currently holds the most power and influence within the fashion industry or in the climate movement or in environmental conservation, it's without a doubt mostly white men and women, especially if we look at the leadership teams of the largest organizations and corporations in these spaces. When we're talking about the need to have more diverse voices lead, beyond just the tokenism of having more diverse representation or sometimes the performative allyship that a lot of brands are showcasing now, how might bringing traditionally marginalized people to the forefront, especially Black women who face both racism and sexism, how might this influence the actual dialogues and solutions that come of the climate movement, which I know is something that you're passionate about as well, that we didn't get to touch on a lot here, but I would love for you to go into that a little bit. Solutions, and this is a, this is like a key case for why diversity of, of perspective is so central to meaningful innovation. The people who created problems are not going to be, should not be, give empowered to be the ones that are leading decisions about change and and sometimes reformation and sometimes just straight up revolution because they're they're too far away from the problems to see how they how they've created impact and that's why I think when we talk about Black women as leaders why we have such a powerful opportunity moving forward and such a missed opportunity looking back to tap into people who can see based on the, the intersections of marginalization, exactly what needs to be fixed. And so I, and I'm really excited that there, I, I hope, I hope that more and more people will continue to challenge their own conditioning about the, the ability for black women to lead, because I truly believe that there's a, there's a really rich combination of insights that black women have that are going to be pivotal to us saving the planet. And as we're wrapping up our discussion, I'd love for you to share whatever else you feel is important to get across to our listeners that I didn't get to ask you about, as well as your general cause to action for them and how they can support your work. Yeah, I think that in thinking about and reflecting on this journey of Grant Boulevard, this company that I founded in 2017, I think that it affirms for me that we all have the ability to start something that creates a ripple. And I, and I really hope that your listeners, that, that we all, that us as a community now, that we continue to, to make the conscientious choice of thinking about this living purposefully, thinking about justice every day and thinking about environmental impact every day. And, and that's a marathon of a, of a life choice. It's, it's that lifestyle shift. It will stay with us until the day that we die. And we're going to feel, you know, I certainly sometimes feel discouraged and frustrated. I feel overwhelmed sometimes, sometimes just physically tired from showing up in my own community as a councilwoman and leading as a business leader around Grant Boulevard. But I think that I think that as long as as long as we collectively really decide to be purposeful about how we spend our money, then we're doing a great service to people of color and to the planet. And I, and I really hope that, that that becomes clear. Yeah. I think that, that I hope that that becomes clearer and clearer to us that we want to kind of just, we want to see suffering. We don't want to turn away from suffering. We want to see suffering. We want to, we want to acknowledge it in our choices, both on the macro and the micro level. 
Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to check out and support Kimberly's work at Grant Boulevard, you can head to www.grantblvd.com and you can also follow their brand on Instagram and Facebook at GrantBLVD. Kimberly, it's been an honor to have you here on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, your story, and your expertise. I've been personally really touched and and I'm really grateful for you and this conversation. What final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Let's keep pushing. Let's stay encouraged. Let's make sure that when there are all these things we can't control, we take action where we have control. We vote with our dollars. We vote at the bat with our ballots. And we we see that that we have a lot of a lot, a lot of power to create and to, to create peace and to ease suffering for one another. This wraps up today's episode. Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show and find our independent platform valuable, please, please come join our Patreon starting at just a tip of $2 at greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is I Need Angels by Adrian Sutherland. And I also want to thank our audio producer, Scott Donnell, and our post-production content manager, Elizabeth Joy. We appreciate your support so, so much, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. I need angels, I need angels.